If you have your Bibles, it's going to be James chapter 5. And he closes out using eight verses, verses 13 through 20. And within his close, he has three distinct points to his close. They're easy to identify these three points. If you look at just verse 13, just look how it starts. It says, is any among you? Look at verse 14. That's the second point now. He says, is any among you? It's real easy to see it. Go down to verse 19. He says, my brethren, if any among you. Right? This lays out these three points very distinct. I would like to focus on the last point, verses 19 and 20, but I believe that it would be wise of us to look at all three of the points and get a little bit of context before we do that. So we'll just kind of start in order, work our way down, and uh, hopefully get out on time. So let's start. Verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he is to sing praise. James is writing this letter to an assembly of believers, the Jewish believers. Um, These people were facing hostility. They were in hard times. They were in a situation of tremendous stress. These folks were under trials, experiencing great trouble. They were being persecuted for what they believed. The pressure was coming at them from the inside and from the out. James is, is, is describing throughout this book of what it's like when it's tough, when it's the battleground, when we're on the, the battlefield of living for Christ among a sinful world. We can relate. Doing ministry. Being a part of church. Sometimes it gets tough. He spent this whole book talking about these types of trials. So with that type of theme to the book, it really isn't surprising, frankly, when we come to verse 13. He says, uh, are any of you uh, struggling? Yeah. They were. James, he knew that. If any among you are suffering, persecuted, that's really what it means. Are any of you feeling abused within living your life for Christ? Standing up for righteousness? Any of you been treated wickedly? Right, The group's getting bigger. Any of you feel like you're in distress? Okay, yeah. Any of you in calamity? Right, Feeling the blows? And once he says, then you must, it's simple, pray. Turn to God for your source of comfort. That's the idea. Turn to God. Yeah, even for us in, in our modern day today, right here sitting in our chairs, if, if you are feeling tired, in ministry. And it, it can happen. I can attest to that. If you're feeling discouraged, yeah, it can happen. I know. I hear people. I know. We can all feel like that. Or even underappreciated. I've been doing this for a long time. It doesn't even seem... Change. I, mean, you know, I get it. All right, when you, when it's the times when you start wondering, why? Why? Or is it ever going to stop? Is it ever going to change? Is it ever going to start? He says, that's when you you just need to pray. Peter puts it beautifully. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Just cast it on to God. I know in my life things can seem to be going so good. So beautiful. I'm just like, yes, it's just coming together. And how fast it can change. Especially in ministry. I mean, like one phone call, it can change. One text message, oh my goodness, it can change. One overheard comment. I'm like, oh, that's why. Change is so fast and you can become crushed under this whole thing. And, and, and James is simply saying, continually plead to God for comfort. 
So when you're suffering, pray. And on the flip side of that, if you're cheerful, he says, sing praises. If your soul is well, if you have a happy attitude, if you're on top of it all, praise. Verse 13, the first point of his close, it's really talking about comfort. You're in deep spiritual pain, your soul is broken, pray. When your soul is rejoicing, praise. And right, praise is really a form of prayer. It's not the petitioning, it's not the pleading form of prayer, but it's the praising, it's the thanking form of prayer. So pray. That's point one. If you're in the battlefield, literally a soldier, and you're out there, and you're starting to tire, you're starting to, to get a little fatigued, maybe a little, whatever that is, pray. Turn, turn to God, request comfort. Now he turns to point two, and that's starting in, in verse 14, and he steps, he kind of kicks it up into a higher gear here. This isn't somebody who's just kind of suffering. This is, frankly, somebody who's lost the ability to endure the suffering. When we come to verse 14 now, we don't have a soldier that's out in the battlefield that's having a hard time, that needs some, a little bit of help, needs some reinforcement. Now we've, called it, uh, now we've come to the fallen soldier. This is literally now in verse 14. This is the wounded warrior, the exhausted, the weary, the, the depressed, the defeated Christian. Is any among you... Modern Bible translations have always translate the sick. Probably most of your Bibles say sick. As a result of that, we look at this and assume that this is talking about some type of physical sickness. The primary meaning of the word used here is to be weak, feeble, to be impotent. It's, it's used in the Bible other places. Uh, Romans 4, 4.19, 14.1 and 2, Romans 14.12, all speaking to weak in faith. Same word. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, Romans 5, 6, it speaks to, to uh, weak and spiritual, or spiritual weakness. 2 Corinthians, it speaks of weakness of a personality. So if we translate this verse consistently with other places found in Scripture, it would read this way. Is any among you weak? can give a different meaning to the whole sense of what we're seeing. Literally, if, are any of you in the midst of the battle, you're fighting for your life, as it were, against the people persecuting you, and literally you're losing out. I know some of you are praying or suffering. That's good. That's good. Pray. But, but are any of you weak? I mean, arrive to the point where you're defeated. You are down. You need the medic on the battlefield. Maybe persecution puts you there. But the point is you're weak. You're mentally weak. You're, you're emotionally weak. You're physically weak. You're spiritually defeated. And all the persecutions, all the trials, all the temptations, all the battles, you've tried to pray during this process. But it's hard now to, to draw on the power of God. Now you find yourself in a position of just spiritually weak. And it's hard to pray when you're spiritually weak. In this state where you just feel defeated and all you want to do is disappear. It's, it's, it's hard. Sometimes we feel like we're not even able to pray. And if we can pray, it's not effective. And he's, James says, you know what you need to do here? You need to find somebody else to what? To, to pray. And, and who do you want to find when you're in this state? When you're spiritually weak, you want to go to somebody who is spiritually strong. Absolutely. So who would you go to? Look at verse 14. Let him call for the what? The, the, the elders of the church. Why? Because they are the spiritual strength that you need. Go to the elders of the church, the overseers, the pastors, those who are spiritually strong, those who are spiritually mighty, those who are victorious. They're not perfect. Those who are, are willing to patiently endure, endure, draw on their strength. I mean, look at the end of verse 16. The, the effective prayer of righteous, man. Oh, that can accomplish much. Amen. 
And boy, when you're on the, the bottom, you know what you want to find? That righteous man. You want that effective prayer. Have the elders come alongside you and lift you up. It's really no different than Galatians 6.1. If a brother is overtaken in fault, you, you who are spiritual, restore him. Same idea. Now there's another part of the second point that we can cover real quick, and it's this whole concept or idea of uh, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I mean, what is all that about? The best way to translate that would be literally to rub him with oil in the name of the Lord. Literally, the text says, after having oiled him. This reference was used of washing somebody. It's used of pouring oil over somebody's head or pouring, pouring oil over their feet, rubbing them with oil. People did it after baths. In fact, oil was one of the main uh, base of soap. It literally could refer to wash somebody. If you were injured and you had a cut or a wound, they would use wine because it's fermented and had alcohol, and they'd cleanse out the wound with it, and then they would soothe it with oil. A sign of comfort, of, of, of kind of restoring. It was common to rub down somebody with oil because of soreness in their muscles. Oil was used, uh, it was perfumed with fragrance. Kind of like a cologne or, or what do the girls wear? Perfume. Right? And it's actually, that's still used in the Middle East today. To say to somebody that you wanted to oil them could, could uh, as well mean as, I, I want to like stimulate you and encourage you. I want to massage your spirits. I want to warm your heart. I, I want to provide strength for your weakness. It's the Psalms 20, or the 23rd Psalms. Right? Speaking of the great shepherd, he anointeth my head with oil. Now this is an awesome concept. Let's, let's put these two together. We have this injured uh, warrior laying on the battlefield, needs help. The elders come alongside him, and, and the prayer of the effective man is, is, or the prayer of a righteous man is effective, and they, they lift him up, and they, 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 they oil him. They raise him up. When you come to the point in your life where you're exhausted, you're spiritually weak, all your resources, they feel like they're, they're gone, they're non existent. Right? You, this is the point you've already been through the suffering stage. You've already tried to pray, and you get into the stage where you're just flat out weak. Your prayers seemingly go nowhere. You're losing the battle. Everything's falling apart. Go to the spiritually strong, the elders, the leaders of the church. Let them come alongside you. Let them intercede on your behalf, and as it were, oil you with comfort. Restore you. Let them strengthen you. Notice the last part of verse 15. If he commits sin, they'll be forgiven him. See, he's not talking about physical disease or illness here. Physical disease and illness are not related to sin. He's talking about spiritual matter. It's an interesting close to a book. Out of all the topics he's talked about in James, the first time he brings up the prayer is in this last close. So, so when we're struggling, going through living for Christ in a sinful world and, and, and it's hard, he says, yep, pray, we've covered this, right? And then when you're fallen, man, you, we, we, need, we need each other. It's good justification of the importance of the body of Christ. Something we ought not take for granted. Now for the third part, the thrust of our focus today, verses 19 and 20. My brethren... If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the errors of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. He closes on a very poignant 
objective that he has for us. Uh, In essence, he's now providing us with a mission. And this mission is to save souls from death. James Final, his highest intent is to cover, or to, I'm sorry, to convert the sinner from the error of his ways, to save his soul from death, and to cover his sin in forgiveness. In other words, James wants to be sure that no one is deceived about their salvation. James is saying that there are those who outwardly seem to respond, but no transformation of the heart ever occurs. He's saying that there are professors of the faith, but not possessors. He's saying there are hearers, but they're not doers. And literally, that is his message. Right? These series of tests... How do you respond to trials? That's one of the tests he gives. How, how are you doing? How do you respond to temptation? Another one he gives. He, he, in his book, he, how do you respond to uh, the standard of holiness? How do you respond to all different types of people? How do you respond to righteous works and righteous deeds? Chapter 3, how, how's your tongue? That's a good test. What comes out of your mouth? It's a test. Wisdom, if you're a rock of ages, a month ago, we, uh, roughly a month ago, we, we, we talked about godly wisdom versus earthly wisdom. He says, that's a test. Where do you draw your wisdom from? How do you respond to the world? The love of the world. Are you a friend of the world? How's your attitude towards yourself? Are you proud or humble? How's your attitude towards God? Attitude towards wealth and riches. Attitude towards lying and, or speaking truth. All these are tests by which we need to measure our faith. And here, at the end of this book, an extensive book of tests, he ends with this call of evangelism. But what's interesting about this, it's a specific call of evangelism, and it's a call to the believers to do evangelism, in essence, within the church. I mean, did you get that? That, that, that James would have the assumption that there are people who are in the church, who are associated with the church, who identify with the church, but they're not genuine? James. I really don't mean that flippantly. But in essence, that they have, a, in his words, a dead faith, they produce nothing. These tests, they failed. And so what he's saying here is, if you have true faith, you say, man, we need to pursue the others. If you look at some that, 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 that have left, you'll see, or, or look at their lifestyles. We'll go into this in detail. And that, that they failed these tests. He says, pursue them in the name of Christ. My brother, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the errors of his ways will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sin. I'm telling you, there's a lot of things we can be busy with. There's a lot of things we can spend our life doing. There's a lot of ways to spend our resources, our time, and our talents. But I can think of nothing better to do on behalf of a sinner than this. In verse 13, it was the believer who is suffering. Verse 14, the believer who needs spiritual strength infused through the prayer of righteous men. Now in verse 19, it is the one who claimed to be a believer but departs and this person needs to be drawn back to true salvation by the rest of the fellowship. The final instructions, they sort of descend through these categories. The first one, right? 13, we care for ourselves. We need to care for ourselves. The second one, verse 14, we need to care for the weak among us. And the last one, verse 19, we need to care for others who are lost. 
He is not here calling us to examine ourselves. The rest of the book he is. He is now calling the readers to pursue those people who in their eyes have failed the test. And I'm not talking about judging other people. We'll go through it. But he's talking about a ministry here. He is literally talking about a ministry of going after people who give evidence of not being genuinely saved. So they're thinking, man, I know people like that. People riddled in my past like that. I mean, do you know people like that that used... And when I talk about church, too, I guess I'm not talking about the Rock Community Church. I'm talking about Christ Church. So it's not that they've left the Rock Community Church. That's not it. That, that, that is an okay thing to do. If God calls you out of the church, that's, that's okay. That's not what I'm talking about. But do you know people that used to be a part of the family of God and, and no longer are? In essence, they've turned their back. People who used to at one point of their life honor Christ, but now are living in overt sin. No people who used to say, I, uh, I'm a Christian. The reality is we live in Orange County, almost everyone says that. But they deny the faith. Does your lips match your heart? These are the people that James is concerned about. It's a call to evangelism. It's a call to evangelism within the church. So, so you might have some questions right now, so let's go through this logically. How are we to identify what people we're supposed to go after and, and help them? And the first point is we need to understand the evidence. There is evidence that we can look at. Before we can help somebody, we've got to get the evidence and, and truly understand if they're genuine or not. And in, in order to identify the lost person, there's some things we can look at. Verse 19, My brethren, if, any am, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns them back, we can stop there, that little first phrase. First of all, my brethren, again, this is an all-encompassing uh, statement referring to the whole church, all of us. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns them back, Right? If there's anyone among you that shows they aren't genuine, strays from the truth. That's the first part of evidence. They stray. Literally, it's a, a term used in Scripture to uh, refer to wandering. Right? Spiritually drifted. It's frequently used to refer to the condition of the unsaved. The unsaved are said to wander or stray. Titus 3.3 3, For we also once were foolish, ourselves disobedient, deceived, same word coming up here, literally, led astray, led off to wander away from the realities and turn to lust and pleasures and spending our lives in evil and envy and hating one another. They've gone astray. Words used many times in reference to those that are in an unsaved condition, unregenerated. These are people now, what James is referring to, have claimed to believe for a while that they come to a place where they've just wandered away. What have they strayed away from, though? It's, it's specific. They've strayed away from what? The truth. What is the truth? The gospel. The gospel truth. Right? They all go together. This is a person that's not just gone away. Not that maybe you don't see, but literally they've gone away from what? They've gone away from the truth. And the first evidence of that false faith is the departure from the gospel truth. Right? They reject the, what? The gospel. They go away from the word of God. They depart doctrinally. Jesus said it himself, if you continue in my word, John 18, 31, you are my true disciple. You are my real disciple. So there are people who will wander from the faith, but he's saying, you know what? That's not characteristic of a true Christian. 
we're going to have our hard times for sure, but a true Christian is never going to reject the truth of the gospel. A true Christian is not going to deny Jesus Christ. A true Christian is not going to say that, that Jesus isn't God. Uh, uh, he's not going to speak against the saving gospel. Yes, true Christians may fall into sin. Yes, I think we know that. We might fall into iniquity. Yeah, we'll probably be disobedient. But we're not going to walk away from the true saving truth. So the first evidence is that somebody who was a, that was around, that, that used to claim Jesus is not genuine, is they literally deny the truth. Straight away. I know people like that too. I went to Christian school, so I know a lot of people like that. Been in the church most of my life. Once said they believe, but now denying it, rejecting Christ, rejecting his gospel. So the first thing we can look at is, 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 is are they abiding by the truth, the doctrine of the Bible? Now there's a second thing we can look at too. Look at verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from what? The heir of his ways. Here's a second characteristic, a second piece of evidence. The first thing is people who aren't genuine wander away from the truth. The second thing is they get into the heir of their way. It basically means that they have gone into error or rejection. The key concept is, though, it's his way. Not, not his way, but his way. It means his own lifestyle, his own, his own pattern of living, his own path, his own kind of life. That's the idea here. So the first thing we can look for is an errant theology. That's evidence. The second thing we can look for is an errant lifestyle. Both of those are evidence. And, and if we see people like that, he's saying, man, we need to go after them. They've wandered. The clearest evidence, probably an errant lifestyle. This is proactively, we need to be looking for people who have denied the substance of the gospel message. We need to proactively be looking for those who have left and, and are living a lifestyle that rejects the principles of God's word. It's a proactive message. And it kind of makes sense, right? You see these two things, they, they, they go together, our theology and our lifestyle, right? Truth and virtue, they normally always go together. Falsehood and corruption, too, they normally always go together. So then I think, man, am I proactively doing that? I know a lot of people that, that, that used to, that, that came, that wanted to learn, that, that wanted to grow and Gosh, I'm studying this. I'm like, man, I haven't seen them in years. I, maybe I should be pursuing them. So the first thing we need to understand is the evidence. That, we, that there is evidence. There's things we can look at. We can measure it against God's word. Not our opinions, not our judgments. Not saying that. But the second thing we really need to understand is, is the threat. He's saying there's evangelism in the church. The first thing we need to understand is, is, is the evidence. The second thing is the threat. And we ought to be compelled by the threat. This should kind of increase our heart rate because we need to realize what these people face, what is at stake here, and what's at stake is an eternal soul of the person. The person's soul. Look again at what James says. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his, his ways will save his soul. We are talking about human souls here. When God breathed into man the breath of life, that man now became a living soul. That is the whole person, the real person that dwells in a mortal body, the immortal person. That's who we are trying to save, the soul. It's a big threat. The soul is being threatened. What is it, what is it being threatened by? Save his soul from 
Death. Literally, death is what James has in mind here. Not just physical death, we're all going to face that at one point, but eternal death. It's, it's, it's death in, in hell. It's eternal judgment. We need to help these people. We need to understand the threat that they face death. And they face death loaded with a multitude of sin. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately w- wicked. And this sin and this threat it just accumulates and accumulates. Now I understand one sin is enough to make us not worthy to stand before a pure and holy God. But I just imagine the, the condition, the state that they're in. Kind of a damning reality. So we need to understand the threat. These people were once a part of the church. They've now dr- drifted into false doctrine. They've now drifted into godless lifestyles. We need to realize the evidence that their, their faith is not genuine. That they were not belonging to Christ. I think it's easy to forget the threat. To kind of come complacent and, and come to be fed and, and, and to be a part of it. But, there's, and, 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 but we forget the bigger picture. That they're eternal souls. That they're people that we interact with. That we come across our paths. So pretty heavy. Look for evidence. We need to understand the threat. So this all sounds great. But how is this going to get done? How are we going to move forward? I mean, literally, James is putting before us like a mission. An objective. Things that we ought to be doing. How, how is the work going to get done? Who's going to be the agent? Who's going to carry this out? Who's he going to use? Must be a preacher or a pastor, right? This is some heavy lifting. At least somebody who's went to seminary. Right? That would be good. At least they're, they're trained and equipped. Let's look at the text, verse 19. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, interesting, let him know that he who turns the sinner, interesting. Do you know who the instrument is? It's the one. It's the, it's the he who. You get that? It, it doesn't say here elders. Unfortunately, it doesn't say deacons. It doesn't say preachers. It doesn't say apostles. It doesn't say pastors. But it says the one, the he who. This means, this means what? It's, it's anybody. It's, it's all of us. It's, it's general. Like literally, we have a task to do. We have been commissioned. Oh my goodness. We are proactively have been commissioned, put in the ranks into the army, into the call to go out and do this. Us. Anybody. It's general. It's a general task. We now have a ministry. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.18. This is a great verse. All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You hear that? Let, let me read again. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Literally, the, the us who have the ministry of reconciliation are the us whom God has reconciled. We are all in this ministry. In our church, we have a lot of ministries, right? We've got the nursery, some of you guys helping there, and you, and you like doing that, holding babies, rocking them, changing diapers. That's good for you. And then we got children's and, or junior high. So that's a good yes or no. Like, I'll do anything but the junior high. Or junior high is appealing. Right? We've got men's and women's, all this stuff. And we, we, and we find our, our little place where we can serve. And that's, that's neat. 
But what James is saying here is that whole, we got these sayings, 80-20 rule, 90-10, 10% of the people, 90% of the world. He's saying that, but in this ministry, it's all of us. If you have been reconciled by Christ, then we have been called to reconcile. You can think of it as, in this ministry, you've already got your business card, and it's got your name on it. You are in the rank. The phone directory, your extension, it says, yeah, Ministry of Reconciliation next to it. Pretty powerful. Why does he choose to use us? I don't fully understand that. It doesn't always make sense. But if we were called to, or if we've been reconciled by God, then we have the ministry of reconciliation. It is ours. Literally, that's why we've been called to be ambassadors for Christ. All of us. Every single one. And it's easy to wander around and just kind of hope that one day somebody will come across our path. God will put them there and we'll be there to, to minister to them and stuff. And, and if that one day comes, then we'll, we'll be ready and I could say something, maybe pray with them, do a devotion, maybe mentor but he's kind of saying in, in, a, in a, he wants us to be proactive in this. Literally giving us an objective to go out and feel. And literally we need to sit down and we need to think of people that we, we know, that we used to know, that, that used to be a part of the church, that used to name the name of Christ and we don't see him anymore. See, man, it's important that we go after these, these people. And I'll tell you something, the threat of their eternal judgment is greater than the threat of a, the eternal judgment of somebody who's never professed Christ. Because how much greater the judgment will be, Hebrews 10.29, to the person who knowingly trots under his feet the blood of Christ. So where do we start? Where does evangelism start? James says, well, it ought to start right here with people who profess to know Christ but they're gone. That's subjective. That's the mission. Kind of gives me goosebumps. It's a big job. It's a huge task. It's a monumental challenge. We look at the example of, of Christ himself. He says, oh, for me, I, I came to seek and to save the who? The lost. That was my goal. And I sit there and wonder to myself, is that my desire? Is that what I want to do? To be his ambassador? It's a big responsibility. To, to be his agent? In Luke uh, chapter 15, a lot of parables in this chapter. and uh, he, One of the main parables he tells is the parable of the, the prodigal son. An awesome story. And, and uh, what I love about it is when the son comes back after he realizes how good he had it and and, and he asked for forgiveness. He comes back. says, the father saw him from far off and ran. You've got to understand what running, when you were a wealthy man in those days, A, you didn't run. B, to run, you had to lift up your gown and run. Uh, shameful. It's just a parable, so it's giving an example of that, but it literally makes it sound like ran, met him through the town. And we see the celebration of it all. Oh, my, my boy is back. He gives, bring out the ring, a signet ring. Reinstate this boy. Bring out the sandals and, and the gowns. Gowns back then were no, it's not just like grab a robe. Gowns were the things that you'd pass on generation to generation. These were big things. 
In the same pastor, or uh, the same chapter, it gives the parable of the lost coin. Right? Looking for the coin, tearing apart the house, finds the coin, and it talks about the celebration. The joy of salvation. That's what that whole chapter is about. That's what the prodigal son's about. To show the love of the Father for us. Or the sheep, that's in that chapter too. Right? The, the 99 and you leave the one. Grab that sheep, bring him back, and they rejoiced. The sheep was found, they rejoiced. The coin was found and everybody rejoiced. The son came back and was found and everyone rejoiced. If we want to bring joy to the heart of God, it comes through salvation. And I ask myself, is that my highest joy? So many things get in the way. So many things can cloud that up. He wants us to be focused on bringing somebody to Christ. And finally, we need to understand the evidence. We need to understand the, 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 the threat. We need to know that we are the instrument. But if, in the last thing we need to know about the ministry of reconciliation, we need to know the goal. We, if any among you stray from the truth and one turns him back or, or converts him, turns him from sin to God, from sin to righteousness, Acts 3.19, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn, that your sins may be wiped away. That's a call to evangelistic uh, called also. It's, it uses the same word. It means to be converted, to be turned around 180. That's why we call it that, to turn from sin and turn to God. So what is our goal of all this? Is to convert. It's used again uh, in verse 20. Let him who know, let him know that he who converts a sinner, turning him from false faith to true faith, then another word, will save. It's the most common word in the New Testament for uh, salvation. He uses that word five times in the book. But it builds to our goal. What is our goal? It's to convert. It is to save there's one other goal, and it's to cover. To cover what? A multitude of sin. To hide a multitude of sin. What does that mean? It means forgiveness. Forgiveness. Proverbs ten twelve. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. James is closing out his book here. That our goal is that we want to lead people to forgiveness. We want to convert people, turning them from sin in order that they may be saved and, and them being saved will, will bring forgiveness for their sins. We are talking about evangelism. Just a little bit, tidbit on the phrase, the multitude of sin. It does not uh, so much describe the state of the sinner, the multitude of sin, but it, it more accurately describes the extent of the forgiveness that God has in grace for the sinner that his grace and mercy abounds, that it is enough to cover a multitude of sin. His part of the mission and objective is done. It's totally and, and ultimately sufficient. I mean, what an awesome ministry this is. A ministry where we look at people and we, we, we examine evidence and if the evidence indicates that they have abandoned the truth, that they abandoned a godly lifestyle, then it says that we have every reason to assume that they have a false face and to at least pursue them. Because we understand the threat. And we understand they're, they're an eternal soul loaded with a multitude of unforgiven sin, man. We want to help. 
And we understand that we're the one that is called. We're the ones that he asked. We're the ones that he wants to use. We're the agent to bring about the goal. To turn their sin to salvation and, and forgiveness. Soul winning. It's all about soul winning. So I can welcome you to ministry today. It's hard. Attacks come from all different ways. For me, sometimes it's just, are they even listening? Junior hires especially. Are you even, does it even matter? It's hard. It's like, I don't want to study. Does it even matter? And those attacks come and they play with your, their head. Maybe if I just didn't do this, somebody better would come in. That's my heart. That'd be awesome. It's this eternal struggle and it's this battle that you start questioning yourself. I'm not good. I know myself. My wife knows how bad I am. I look good up here in front of all you guys. It's this battle. It's hard. It's, it's struggling. I'm insufficient. I know that. I love this story. I'd love to share with you. D.L. Moody, I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with him. He is a giant, um, just a strong evangelist, a uh, lot of books, commentaries, great guy. This is a story after he was done speaking at a, at a conference, I believe it said, um, and, and somebody approached him afterwards. He said, Mr. Moody, he was a big league player. As I listened to you tonight in your address, I noticed and counted 18 mistakes in your English. Looking at his critic, Mr. Moody said, Young man, I am using, to the glory of God, all the grammar that I know. Are you doing the same? That's a fair question. I like that quote because, as you might have noticed, my grammar and vocabulary is really poor. I don't think God's saying it is what it is. Your gifts are what they are. Are we willing to use them for the glory of God? Not that it's going to look the same. Not that we all need to be, you know, become evangelists. That's actually a different word. But we need to evangelize. One other thing I'd like to share with you in closing. I have the privilege of uh, doing a Bible study um, with some men in our church once a month and with Pastor John kind of heads it up. I don't know, two or three months ago, this was just at the end of the chapter, so I ripped out my book, don't tell him. It's a quote. It's an anonymous quote, which makes it that much better. But it's under the section about, about being, I'm sorry, being about the Father's business. This has impacted me greatly. I, if there's ever a quote that we wanted to hang that wasn't biblical in our church on a hallway, this This might be a good one. Stick with your work. Do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Do your work. Let liars lie. Let secretarians quarrel. Let critics malign. Let enemies accuse. Let the devil do his worst, but see to it that nothing hinders you from fulfilling with joy the work God has given you. He has not commanded you to be admired or esteemed. He has never bidden you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehood about yourself, which Satan or God's, or God's servants may start to peddle. He has not commissioned you to track down every rumor that threatens your reputation. If you do these things, you'll do nothing else. You'll be at work for yourself and not for the Lord. Keep at your work. Let your aim be steady as a star. You may be assaulted, 
wronged, insulted, slandered, wounded, rejected, misunderstood, or assigned impure motives. You may be abused by foes, forsaken by friends, and despised and rejected by men, but see to it with steadfast determination, with unfaltering zeal, that you pursue the great purpose of your life and the object of your being, until at last you can say, I have finished the work which thou giveth me to do. Amen. There's a threat. He gives us evidence. He gives us a goal. He gives us a mission. He chooses us. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. You are holy. Lord, we are thankful that we really are called to this ministry of reconciliation because that means that we've been reconciled and that's good news. So Lord, we ask you to work within us Lord, to make sure that we are spiritually strong, Lord. And when we are struggling, let us be people who will come to you in prayer. Lord, when those around us have become weak, let us be those that will come and, and put our arms around them and lift them up. Lord, let us be a body of believers that pursue those who are lost. Not take for chance, uh, not underestimate this ministry of reconciliation. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here this week, Lord, for all the families that are represented. I pray that you'd watch over them, Lord, that we would be lights in this world. Lord, give us safety, uh, health. Lord, bring us back next week. Lord, it's in your son's glorious, merciful name we pray. We all say, amen.